fantastic day well i guess uh it's only about 10 a.m so it's not too far into your day so i guess it's more proper to say i hope you have a fantastic day but this morning i just wanted to do a quick early morning stream i guess it's not really early morning it's late morning but i've been uh, actually i've finished but i have been studying uh very Closely, Father Gary, Guzla, Gary Goulagrange's De Revelazione uh, on Divine Revelation. It's basically a textbook of what's called fundamental theology. So it covers the uh, nature of theology, uh, the nature of revelation, uh, relationship of nature and grace, and then gets into a demonstration of the uh, divine in, divine institution uh Divine, sorry, divine constitution of the Catholic Church. So basically, uh, in, in very long form, defending the faith. But there is a section in De Revelazione where Gary Lagrange discusses the question of salvation outside of the church. And I thought this was very, very interesting because uh, you, you get this sort of tension in a lot of people's minds between the pre-conciliar church and the post-conciliar church on this question. Some people will pull quotes from figures such as St. Thomas Aquinas, amongst others, uh, before the uh, Second Vatican Council. And they will say, well, before the Second Vatican Council, uh, the church taught that outside of the church there is no salvation. But after the Second Vatican Council, the church teaches that there is salvation outside of the church. And this is uh, obviously incorrect. And Father Lagrange actually provides us with some good distinctions for the proper sense of extra ecclesium nullus salus. He, he actually provides us uh, with the historic teaching of the church on this matter actually. So this, uh, and he's going to bring forth the analogy of the body and the soul of the church. This was something which was taught long, long before uh, Vatican II. And actually, there is a section in St. Thomas Aquinas's works where uh, this is taught. So uh, let's get right into it. So this is his second corollary. Uh, this is near the end where he's starting to speak about the obligation for all believers to uh, seek, uh, to, to look into revelation. So uh, where there is doubts or where there is a certain interest or a certain um, idea uh, that, that the church may be uh, a divine institution, there is the obligation to uh, look at the motives of credibility and to consider uh, the motives of credibility, and to research into the faith. There is this obligation uh, that is present. So the question is, okay, well, in these in this, these various stages of um, looking into uh, the divine constitution of the church, the, uh, and also those who uh, do not have any sort of inclination towards uh, looking into the divine constitution of the church, where do they stand uh, in their relation to salvation? Where do they stand in relation to the, the church, actually? So uh, this is the the question which Father Lagrange is going to answer here. And this is very uh, quick, but I'm going to have to explain some concepts in detail. So 
he says, now because all are bound to receive divine revelation when it has been sufficiently proposed to them, all have a grave obligation that is under pain of mortal sin to enter the Catholic Church. For as is historically clear, Jesus Christ, sent by God, established the Catholic Church, which is discernible by her own proper notes as the rule of faith. Indeed, on pain of damnation, Christ commands that all men, as a matter of doctrine, must accept the laws and sacraments from the body of apostles. Quote, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. Going therefore, teach ye all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Likewise, the whole tradition of the tradition, uh, the whole of the tradition affirms that salvation does not exist outside of the church. So when you have, uh, as he says in the first, uh, the first uh, paragraph, when there is this sufficient proposition of divine revelation to an individual, or I guess you could say up to to the the whole of a certain people group, because usually this doesn't happen on an individual basis, there is a grave obligation. So there will be mortal sin unless one enters the Catholic Church. So that is that is the the sort of foundational uh proposition upon which the rest of this analysis will uh, commence. So he begins, those who belong to the body of the church are the baptized who externally profess the Catholic teaching under the magisterium of the Roman pontiff in communion with the faithful. However, those who belong to the soul of the church are all men who have internal faith and charity. So off the bat, Garigou distinguishes between uh, two aspects to membership of the church. So on the one hand, there are those who belong to the body of the church. So there are those who externally profess the Catholic teaching. So they profess the faith. Heretics uh, thus are not a part of the body of the church. They submit to the magisterium of the Roman pontiff. So they're not schismatics and in communion with the faithful. So basically, everybody who professes the faith and is not a schismatic. So this this is a lot of people. A lot of people are a part of the body of the church. But on the other hand, we have those who are part of the soul of the church. Those are those with the virtues internally, not only the profession of the bond of charity, well, at least the outward acting of the bond of charity and the profession of the contents of the faith. So we see this sort of exterior interior uh, uh, thing going on here, because really heresy is something against faith. Schism is something against charity. So where there is at least the outward uh, view of faith and charity there is a membership in the body of the church. But where there is truly the virtue of faith and charity, there is membership in the soul of the church. So we can think of this analogously. Uh, and this is uh, Father Hunter uses this in his outlines of dogmatic theology when he talks about this issue. It is like if you have somebody who is an American we use the term American uh, in, in two senses, although usually we use it in the first sense. First, there are just those people who are uh, American citizens. They may have just been born. Uh, they may have uh, immigrated and became citizens. But really, it's just those who are under certain laws and the jurisdiction of America and have certain uh, duties, obligations, and rights of being an American citizen. It really is something almost purely juridical when it comes to being an American citizen. Now, on the other hand, we have Americans in the sense of somebody who is extremely patriotic. They not only are under the jurisdiction of the American state, they not only uh, are, have certain duties, obligations, and rights, of American citizens, but they also exemplify the virtues 
at least uh, virtues in a relative sense, the virtues of an American citizen. They have a certain uh, love for the traditions and the values that make up an American. They are an American patriot. So that's what it means to be a part of, I guess you could say, the soul of America. So we have uh, membership in two different ways. So when we talk about salvation outside of the church, are we talking about the body of the church? Are we talking about the soul of the church? Are we talking about both? Could one exist without the other? He is going to explain. Hence, he who culpably remains outside of the body of the church to the end of his life will not be saved. Now, he is culpable who faced with serious doubt concerning the matter does not seek after the truth. And this holds off for Terriori. Sorry, uh, I don't know why I had such trouble there. Uh, for him who knowingly and willingly does not enter the church, which he acknowledges to be true. So on the one hand, we have certain people who culpably remain outside of the body of the church. So they remain outside of the body. So they remain outside of the outward profession of faith and the bond of communion of the church. And those are those people who remain outside of this sort of jurisdictional and uh, relationship of profession uh, that is professing the faith. Those who have serious doubts concerning the matter. So they, they have, a, have an inkling that the church may be true. So those who are in any way disposed to think that even maybe the church may be true, and those who, with that inkling, do not sufficiently research the matter. They don't sufficiently, uh, let's say, uh, read the catechism or search uh, certain uh, books in defense of the of the faith of the church, or uh, I don't know, maybe even uh, talk to certain Catholics they know are knowledgeable. Those who do not seek uh, what what notes the church may have of her divine constitution, seek uh, which the certain marks of revelation that are uh, that are present in the church. Look at the, what are called the motives of credibility. Those who have a doubt in the matter and don't seek after the church, uh, don't seek after the truth, and thus remain outside of the church, uh, outside of the body of the church, those are culpable and cannot be saved. And then obviously, those who research in the matter know the church is uh, true and then still choose not to enter the church are also in this, uh, in this boat. Now, on the other hand, however, he who inculpably remains outside of the body of the church can be saved. Notice, this is very important, can be saved. Not will be saved, can be saved. Just because you are inculpable, just because you have uh, this, this uh, common phrase, invincible ignorance, just because you have this invincible ignorance, just because you are inculpable, does not mean that you will be saved. There is still the requirement of faith and charity or perfect contrition. So this is still extremely difficult. So this isn't free pass. So those who uh, may have never heard of the uh, of the teaching of the church, those who may be uh, so brainwashed as to uh, not be able to consider the teaching of the church in a, um, in a, uh, be able to have the ability even to uh, fairly consider the teaching of the church. Those who are in this situation and inculpably remain outside of the body of the church and, and, have faith in charity or perfect contrition, those belong to the soul of the church. And in belonging in the soul of the church, they are able to be saved. So when we talk about extra ecclesium nulla salus, by ecclesium, we are talking about the soul of the church. 
Therefore, it is necessary with a necessity of means for salvation, one, to really belong to the soul of the church. So first, you have to belong to the soul of the church. That is to have faith and charity or perfect contrition. Now, second, actually, there is, so I, I actually spoke um, a little imprecisely, but there actually is a necessity when it comes to uh, the body of the church. So either in reality or in voto, which means through an implicit desire. So those who implicitly desire to enter into the church. So if somebody, if you had a preacher come tomorrow and describe to them the Catholic church, they would, uh, that desire, that implicit desire would become explicit and they would desire to enter into the body of the church. So either this real uh, belonging to the church or this implicit desire to belong to the church or uh, for children in reality. So uh, through baptism, and he explains this down. Uh, actually, I will cover it when I go over the footnotes because 87 is a very important footnote that I need to cover. But when it comes to children, uh, that is through baptism. So whether a Catholic, well, whether a baptism by a Catholic priest or a baptism uh, within a heretical sect. So for the salvation of children, there is this necessity uh, to belong to the body of the church by baptism. So for adults to belong to the body of the church is also something necessary with the necessity of precept. However, this obligation does not diminish true freedom. On the contrary, by traveling upon this path, as St. Paul says, the creature also itself shall be delivered from the servitude of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. And now he's going to get into the uh, actually preconciliar teaching uh, of the magisterium on this issue, basically saying what he has said thus far. But I wanted to get into footnote 87. So hence, in the case of those who have heard nothing concerning the true faith and are invincibly ignorant of it, there is only merely negative infidelity. And as St. Thomas says, this does not have the formal character of sin, but rather of punishment for such ignorance of divine things followed upon the sin of our first parents. However, those who are unfaithful in this way and die in such infidelity are indeed condemned on account of other sins, which cannot be remitted without faith. However, they are not condemned on account of the sin of infidelity. Thus, the following proposition of Baeus was condemned, purely negative infidelity in those among whom Christ has preached is a sin. So St. Thomas very clearly lays this out, and uh, a lot of people um, don't really get this. Uh, when it comes to a lack of knowledge concerning the true faith that is inculpable. That is, uh, it, it's not like you're living in um, you're living in the West and have the internet and have access to all of these resources and know your obligation to uh, seek into the true faith. But it's somebody who maybe doesn't have uh, access to any of these resources and have uh, have no ability to seek into the true faith or even knowledge of the fact that there is the, the true faith, but they are thus invincibly ignorant of it. This ignorance of it is not sinful. It is not a sin, but if they do not have perfect nutrition or true faith and charity, they will, uh, they will uh, be damned for on account, not of that sin, but on account of other sins. So again, invincible ignorance isn't some sort of, uh, free pass uh, that you're able to um, you're able to just uh, be saved without uh, the requisite uh, virtues without grace so continuing uh, on to the teaching of the magisterium on this and Pius the ninth taught by all means however it must be held de fide that outside of the apostolic Roman church nothing nobody can be saved that it is the true ark of salvation, and that anyone who does not enter into her will perish in the floodwaters. How, never, uh, nonetheless, one must hold that if that it is equally certain that he who labors in ignorance of the true religion, if such ignorance be invincible, is not bound by fault before the eyes of God. So again, he's he's merely just saying that ignorance of the true faith isn't automatically uh, damning 
not that all those who are ignorant of the true faith will be saved uh, because again perfect contrition still required on account of uh, their sins and the same pope wrote another encyclical we know as well as you that those who suffer from invincible ignorance with regard to our most holy religion by carefully keeping the natural law and its precepts which have been written by god in the hearts of all by being disposed to obey god and to lead a virtuous and correct life can by the power of divine light and grace so notice again this isn't some sort of natural salvation there still is uh, the power of grace working within them in order that they may keep the precepts of the natural law for God who sees, examines, and knows completely the minds and souls, the thoughts and qualities of all will not permit in his infinite goodness and mercy anyone who is not guilty of a voluntary fault to suffer eternal punishment. Again, this person has to be not guilty of a voluntary fault. However, also well known is the Catholic dogma that no one can be saved outside of the Catholic Church, and that those who obstinately oppose the authority of the Church and stubbornly remain separated cannot obtain salvation. But God forbid that the children of the Catholic Church should in any way at all be unfriendly to those who are not at all joined to us by the same bonds of faith and charity. Nay, let them be ever ready to aid them, and above all, let them strive to bring them back to Catholic truth and to the most holy, loving mother, the Church. And then uh, besides this, I found actually another interesting section that I wanted to uh, quickly read before we get out of here. I'm going to check the live chat, see if anybody's chatting. Will, will, will you say that people like James White are hellbound? How am I supposed to know? Do, do, do I have like, does, uh, does the YouTube, uh, YouTube, uh, YouTuber privileges allow me some sort of like, um, telephone to God where I can just ask him who's damned and who's saved. I can give you it. I can give you it in, in, in general. And this is in general right here. Those outside of the church who will be damned and who will be saved. I can't give you particulars of, of who exactly are in this situation. Uh, which article uh, slash book is this from again? Uh, this is from De Revelazione on Divine Revelation. I put the link in the comments below. So, And then will this cover what is required to be inside the church? Well, to be inside the soul of the church is required uh, faith and charity. Yeah, and then in another place, uh, Gary Goose says almost with certainty that there are saved Hindus and Muslims, not even that there can be. Yes, exactly. Okay, then I thought this this piece, and uh, actually, do I have my charger? There it is. I, okay, good. I have my charger. I, I'll do some Q&A after this, actually. I've, I've decided I want to do Q&A. Just got to throw this charger on my laptop boom it's charging now i can be here forever okay so i've i just wanted to close up with this section uh, i thought this was super interesting uh because a lot of people uh get into a lot of confusion uh when it comes to the council of florence and florence's teaching on the fact that non-catholic martyrs aren't true martyrs but uh, Gary Gu actually talks about this and kind of explains uh, this. And then uh, it's a quick note of uh, Benedict XIV. He is a, an 18th century pope. He wrote a pretty famous work on canonization. Very good scholar. It's actually a lot of the reason why uh, Benedict XVI chose the name Benedict was from Benedict XIV and XV uh, because the Benedicts are known to be uh, more scholarly popes. So he says... Led by St. Thomas, theologians commonly teach that a heretic dying for a true article of faith cannot be a martyr inasmuch as he lacks both unformed and formed faith. They add that such a person can be a martyr before God, though not for the church, if he is invincibly a heretic and is disposed to believe everything that would be legitimately proposed to him as being revealed. So actually, we can say, uh, due to uh, some sort of invincibility, in their, her uh, in their heresy, 
and a sort of implicit uh, implicit belief in the articles of the faith that martyrs can actually uh, be martyrs, even if they are heretics, uh, although uh, not a martyr for the church, but only before God. And, uh, and I saw this quote from, uh, and he puts this quote from Tacker, uh, Ten, Ten, I've never heard his name pronounced actually, Tenkeray, Tenkeray. Uh, let me look that up. There's nobody pronouncing it. Darn it. That's unfortunate. Whatever. He says, those who were killed in Uganda from between 1885 and 1887 believed in good faith. So that, as is clear from their truthful uh, narrations, the religion that they embraced was the religion divinely revealed by Christ. And therefore, they were able to be aided by divine grace so that they were able to hand over their lives for the sake of religion, which although incompletely, they embraced in those truths which are necessary for salvation. In this case, through a divine intervention, they demonstrated the truth of Christianity, though not of Protestantism inasmuch as the latter is opposed to the Catholic Church. This is very interesting. Uh, you have Gary Gu, uh, well, at least the guy. You have Gary Gu, or the guy, talking about how Uh, you have Protestant martyrs. I'm trying to look uh, for the footnote because I think the footnote actually mentions a bit more details uh, about the Ugandan martyrs. No, it doesn't. Dang it. Wonder, wonder what historical event uh, he's referring to here. It's very interesting that we can actually uh, legitimately speak of martyrs who are uh, heretics. So if there is any questions, I will cover them. I'm going to look up what, what is this Uganda 1885 uh, deal. Okay, here it is. The Uganda Martyrs. Uh, the Uganda Martyrs are a group of 22 Catholic and 23 Anglican converts to Christianity in the historical kingdom of Buganda. Now part of... <laughs> Wait, you're telling me that there's actually a place called Buganda? No. Yes. Okay, there is a place called Buganda. That is uh, interesting. Buganda. Oh, my. Yes, they were martyred uh, with the Anglicans. Buganda. Dang. I can't believe that's an actual place. That's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah, I don't see. I don't see uh, any other details. About how the church treats the the Anglican, uh, the Anglicans amongst them. Okay, so let me look at all the questions. Okay, so the fact of the matter is, even if someone is invisibly joined to the church for some time, they will almost certainly be damned because of the inability to receive forgiveness through the sacraments. Yeah, uh, that, that's actually something to remember. Um, even while we give all of these qualifications that are, uh, that are based on um, clearly revealed uh, propositions uh, that we still need to realize that it is extremely difficult uh, to have perfect contrition for one's sins or to remain unspotted. So, yeah, e even even while uh, we we do admit this as a possibility. Uh, we all have to be clear about the sheer difficulty uh, of having perfect contrition. Okay, so would, so would that mean that some Hindus and Muslims are not outside the church? They're obviously outside of the body of the church because they're not, they don't profess the true faith or are in union with the uh, 
with the faithful. So obviously uh, they're outside of the body of the church. But uh, as we've laid out above, uh, they may be a part of the soul of the church if they have true faith and charity. Uh, would this apply to catechumens? I actually actually don't know how catechumens would fit into um, this this uh, scheme schema. No, no, get out of here! Get out of here! A man who is invisibly joined to the church has been joined to the church by grace, but is suffering under error. Similarly, a man may be even a murderer without guilt through severe mental defect. Oh, my. Basically, anyone and everyone is possibly in the church, and perhaps everyone is in the church and has always been in the church. It's not impossible. It's just definitely not true. <laughs> I, I can have, I can actually, I can have moral certitude that this is wrong. Um, actually, technically, uh, since divine grace, yeah, since divine grace is something which is entitively supernatural. Uh, you would only be able to have propositional certitude. Um, so I think it would be the same with divine grace lacking in somebody. Okay, but yeah, uh, basically, uh, technically, but no. Soul and body of the church, are they two different things? Well, that's what like the whole first 20 minutes of this stream was on, so... Yeah, but it is it is the the common teaching of the fathers and doctors of the church that most people are damned, and even if they're wrong, and there is this, not not saying that I believe it, I definitely don't believe this, but even if there is this uh, near universality of salvation, it's always better to act like most are going to be damned and to evangelize souls to uh, do penance uh, for the salvation of sinners uh, than it is to uh, be lax due to the fact that most people will be saved anyways. Uh, it's better just to just do follow the common teaching uh, both on a theoretical level because there is a, a strong consensus on this and on the practical level of it just makes you a better Catholic. Okay. So that is in haven't heard of the soul of the church before. Yeah, this is, this is the common teaching uh, on this matter. Uh, eventually I want to do something a lot longer on this going off of father Hugon's uh, work on Uh, would it be more accurate to say no salvation outside of the soul of the church? Yes, but but as I said, uh, there does need to be at least an implicit desire um, to join the body of the church. Yeah, so so there is there is some sort of relation uh, to the body of the church, but um, actual membership. Uh, is not necessary in the body of the church, but actual membership is necessary for the for the soul of the church. Okay, that makes sense now. Okay, I'm glad. Glad I explained it to you. Yeah, and it is important to notice that I am using preconciliar theologians. So um, this isn't like something made up by Vatican II. This is actually very, very common. I've read it in uh, Father Hunter. I've read it in, obviously, Father Lagrange in multiple places. I've read it... Uh, I've read it multiple, uh, multiple.
multiple times. This isn't something that is just made up. Okay, so that's all I have. Unless there's more questions, I guess I'll give a minute for more questions. If not, I'll let you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Um, is the body of Christ and the body of the church different? Well, the church is the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I guess the body of the church is the body of the body of Christ. True, real. Well, actually, the, uh, the soul of the, the, the uncreated soul of the church is the Holy Spirit. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how those concepts would relate. Okay. So how should we articulate these points with others outside the faith? Yeah, I think, I think the best way and the way that I've generally seen, uh, the manuals treat this because uh, I'm trying to think of a place where I've expl I explicitly remember them treating it. I know I have read them, uh, treat this, but the gist of it is to talk about this in terms of the obligation to look into revelation. Uh, basically, uh, when you when you talk to somebody, you can't give them uh, an infallible uh, sort of judgment uh, from yourself that like, hey, you're you're Protestant, you're going to be damned. Uh, obviously, you can't do that. So um, don't do that. And on the other hand, uh, you can't be some sort of laxist that just starts explaining to them uh, invincible ignorance and inculpability, uh, because that's not what the apostles did when they uh, went up to people who were in this situation. Well, yes, that, of course, is still true uh, either way. Uh, that's more of a theoretical discussion. What you really should do, what you really should do, is do what the apostles did. So you, when you talk to somebody, you explain to them that it is necessary to look into it, uh, so to speak. The, this is the claims of the Catholic Church. Uh, the Church requires that you, um, that you consider and that you uh, look into the notes of the Church. That you look in well you really look into um all of the motives of credibility to accept the revelation of of jesus christ so pointing to certain miraculous facts uh such as the miraculous life of the church uh the miracle of the the resurrection of the dead various miracles throughout the uh, the history of the of the church um it, it's it's required for them to look into this and in, in certain things like uh the confirmation of old testament prophecy it is uh, you, you put before them the requirement of to consider the motives of credibility. You don't uh, bring up some sort of theoretical discussion about um, the, the possibility of salvation outside of the church. Uh, that never works out well because it can either uh, lead to some sort of uh, laxism or really leads to um, a, a focus uh, on the on, on the wrong thing, I think, at least. But sometimes, I mean, there there is there is a benefit uh, to sort of fire and brimstone, and certain uh, preachers have done this throughout the history of the Catholic Church, is to uh, say turn or burn uh, sort of thing, and yeah, uh, that that's perfectly uh, appropriate in some situations, but usually uh, personal discussion is a lot different than general preaching, uh, so. Sometimes it may just um, not work out practically well for you. God leads all his elect infallibly to formal membership in the visible church. Some theologians believe that. It's a minor minority position, though.
Christian, even the Catholic Church does not know what was in even in the scripture definitively. We do not know if the Percipe Adultere is in scripture or not. Actually, we do. Actually, we, we do. Um, because this was a debate around the time of the Reformation uh, about the parts of scripture, whether you can deny parts like the Percipe Adultere for people that don't know, the uh, John 8 uh, about the woman caught in adultery. There was some textual debates on whether it ought to be included in the Gospel of John, whether it was a later edition, uh, whether it was written by the hand of John, the, the Apostle John. There, there's a lot of debates about the canonicity uh, within uh, critical scholarship. And this was uh, around during the time of the Reformation. Uh, Erasmus uh, talked about this a lot. Uh, even figures like Cardinal Cajetan uh, also um, did talk about these various periscopes. I think I think there's like maybe 10 to 15 uh, uh, substantial uh, verses or sections of verses uh, which are disputed. Um, the longer ending of Mark, uh, the Percipe Adultere, um, the sweat, uh, sweating of blood. Um, I'm trying to think of other places. First uh, John 5, 7. Um, that's the Yoanin comma. Um, there's, there's other places, but that, that's unimportant. But so there was, this was something which was disputed, uh, within the schools. You can read about this, uh, in St. Bellarmine's work on the word of God. There was these disputes in the schools about first the books in the canon. So what books are in or outside of the canon second about the parts of these books. So whether certain texts which are uh, absent in some manuscripts, present in other manuscripts, whether they are a part of the biblical text or not. Now, the church at Trent, when it was declaring the uh, authentic text as the Vulgate, and I have a video on that somewhere else, so you can uh, watch that if you want, specifically on the question of the authority of the Vulgate. But anyways... Uh, when it comes to the uh, canon of the church, the church declared the books of the canon. Um, this is something which is infallible. And also all the parts of the books, too. So, yes, we actually do um, definitively know the parts of the books along with the actual books. Uh, so, yeah, this isn't uh, even a really a question. Um, we, we do know that the Pericope Adultere um, is revelation, whether it was written by John, one of his followers. Um, how, however, the, the means of putting that in the canon was, or putting it in the book of John was, the gospel of John, sorry, the book of John. The gospel of John was, it doesn't matter uh, because it is divine revelation. Uh, does the church believe pious Orthodox saints are under prelist? Like they think Catholic saints are, uh, I I don't know. I don't even, bro. I don't even know what <laughs> I, I've I've been explained prelist. What the heck that means? Once, the fuck prelist. Um, it's like an Orthodox thing. It's some spiritual deception. I don't even know what the what the uh, Catholic version of prelist would be. I don't know. I've, I've, I haven't thought of the question. Okay, so how would you distinguish between monotheists being joined to the soul of the church and baptized Protestants being the soul of the church? Are they different terms? Uh, uh, the... So the situation is different um, because when it comes to monotheists, and uh, it, it is the common teaching of the church that one cannot be invincibly ignorant of the existence of God. So uh, it, it does it does really change the fact that they are monotheists and not polytheists or atheists or, or whatever it may be. Um, so the difference is that in baptism, uh, Protestants uh, do receive, um, if properly disposed, the effect of the sacrament, which is grace. So in, in receiving uh, the grace of properly disposed, then they are, uh, they, they are joined uh, to the church.
uh, in that. And then uh, they are severed uh, by their first mortal sin uh, after that, which would uh, be um, vincibly continuing in their heresy slash schism. Um, or if that there's a certain invincible relationship like that, it might be uh, some sort of personal mortal sin outside of uh, outside of that. Who knows? But yeah, there there is actually uh, a difference uh, when it comes to baptized Protestants because they they uh, have the sacrament of baptism. The Yoannin comma was accepted during Trent, though, but now it's considered not in Scripture. Wrong. 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 The Yoannin comma is part of Scripture. Let me, let me look at the actually the section of the STS that talks about this. This is very good. Um. On Holy Scripture. Okay. Let me see. I know it talks about it somewhere. Dang, where is it? I know this is an important section too. Dude, this is so unfortunate. Okay, let me look. Dang, I cannot find this. Is this in a footnote? Oh, here it is. There you go. Okay, it's sending me to Denzinger. Dang it. I don't have time to look in Denzinger. Because I know the biblical commission gave a statement on this. Uh after Trent, the, well, well after Trent, like in the early 20th century. Okay, here it is. At least I think this is. Oh, no. Okay, so here it is. Um, so I will share my screen. See, I knew it. I knew it. I knew I was right. I knew I was right. Okay, stop screen. Boom. So to the question whether it can be safe, uh, whether it can safely be denied or at least called into doubt that the text of St. John in the first epistle, chapter five, verse seven is authentic, which reads as follow are there. Uh, and there are three that give testimony in heaven, the father, the word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. The response was given on January 13th, 1897 in the negative. So it cannot safely be denied. So at this response, there arose on June 2nd, 1927, the following declaration at first given privately by the same sacred congregation and afterwards repeated many times, which was made part of public law in EB number 121 by authority of the Holy Office itself. And I actually haven't read this, so it's kind of scary. Uh, the decree was given to check the audacity of private, so based, private teachers who attributed to themselves the right either of rejecting entirely the authenticity of the Yonin comma, or at least calling it into question by their uh, own final judgment, but it was not meant at all to prevent Catholic writers from investigating the subject more fully. And after weighing the arguments accurately on both sides with that and 
temperance, which the gravity of the subject requires, from inclining towards an opinion in opposition to its authenticity, provided they pre professed that they were ready to abide by the judgment of the church, to which the duty was uh, delegated by Jesus Christ, not only of interpreting Holy Scripture, but also of guiding it faithfully. Oh, so you actually can uh, be disagreement when it comes to the scientific interpretation of it. You can't find a Catholic bishop in communion with Rome on earth who will say that the Yonin comma is definitively part of scripture. Well, there are plenty in heaven. Let me see. Uh, why do the reform think Roman Catholics are semi-plagian? I have no idea. I have no idea. Well, basically, it has to do um, with the fact that they think they they at least think that we somehow believe that uh, our will to uh, the 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 will that impels the ascent of the intellect is previous to grace somehow, which is ridiculous, considering the ascent of Faith is something entitively supernatural, so it's not even uh, possible um, to happen without grace. So, yeah, it's it's pretty silly. It's pretty very silly. Okay, that's all I have. I'll talk to you guys later. Goodbye.